invite you to open your Bible with me to Isaiah 55 this evening. Whether you're watching online or at home, let's get a copy of God's Word. And while you're doing that, um, I want to pray also in light of uh, Remembrance Day that we will be observing this upcoming uh, Wednesday. So let's turn our attention to God and pray together. Lord in heaven, uh, we know in the scriptures that uh, we Christians are called to share in suffering for the gospel as a good soldier for Jesus Christ. Lord, uh, thank you for that we can stop and take a moment and remember all of those who have stepped to the front lines as uh, soldiers for their nations, for our nation of Canada, for our protection, for our liberty. We thank you, Lord God, for the nation that we live in, and we pray that you would have dominion in it from sea to sea. Lord, we're glad that we can put our attention to your word now, Lord. Help us to share in suffering as good soldiers for Jesus Christ. Thank you for Thank you for the pains of suffering. For we know the scripture says that we will be glorified with Christ provided we suffer with him. And affliction and suffering is painful. It's not pleasant. But we thank you that we can come nearer and nearer to the cross with every pain of our body and ache in our heart. So Lord God, as we remember our sufferings and think on our afflictions today, would you draw us nearer to the cross to know you and love you more? In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to start by reading the whole passage tonight. Isaiah 55, verse 1 to 13. Follow along with me. This is God's word. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend for money, your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen to, diligently to me and eat what is good. And delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples. A leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you did not know. A nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. 
Neither are my ways, your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord an everlasting shine that shall not be cut off. The visions and prophecies of Isaiah are messages from God that were for the people of Judah. Now the messages of Isaiah, it's a compilation of bad news, that's chapter 1 to 39, and marvelous good news, that's chapter 40 to 66. But the bad news came at a time when the people of Judah thought that everything was just okay. And it was pretty shocking. See, their prosperity was going up. Their religious practices were squeaky clean. But actually, they were getting rich off of oppressing marginalized people, and God was not happy with that. And sure, their religious practices were squeaky clean when they were at the temple, but leave the temple when no eyes are looking and they're just like going to every foreign god and idol and cheating with these false pagan religions. And God was not happy with that. So Isaiah came with some bad news. His chosen people, beloved and precious, they're getting kicked out of the promised land. Not only kicked out of the promised land, but taken captive by another even more wicked nation, in exile, as prisoners of war. So that's the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, but then the next chapters, from 40 to 66, they are come with good news. They were being punished. They were being judged and taken into captivity, but they were still God's chosen people. His promises weren't void. He still loved them. He would provide a way for them to be forgiven. And we see that most clearly in Isaiah 53, where the ideal Israelite would come and all of the sin and all of the iniquity and all the transgression, this ideal Israelite who himself knew no sin would suffer all that sin. So they would be forgiven. That's chapter 53. And as a result of that, the reason for their hope, God made these wicked people promises of hope. That's chapter 54. He gave them hope in the assurance of his everlasting, immovable love, his tender compassion, a secure future, a rebuilt nation, more glorious and and, and more marvelous than they could have ever imagined. But... At that moment, their nation was tattered. Their nation was in ruins. And God knew how they felt about this. 
In Isaiah 54, verse 11, God calls these people of Judah, O afflicted ones, storm-tossed and not comforted. That right there might be one of the best verses to describe what life is like in 2020. Maybe might be one of the best passages to describe what we've been experiencing at our church. Afflicted. Storm-tossed. No comfort. But Isaiah 55 shows that Even in our deepest afflictions, God offers hope. So whether that be the deepest afflictions that you see in the world around us, whether that you feel in the tension with the people who are around your kitchen table, and what you see in your loved ones who got sick beyond your expectation, what you're feeling in strained relationships with other brothers and sisters in Christ, in our deepest afflictions... God offers hope. Isaiah 53 in this context is the reason for hope. 54 is the promises of hope. And 55 is the invitation for hope. So in Isaiah 55 verse 1 to 13, we see God offer his people two invitations for us to find hope. Two invitations. Come empty... And seek humbly. Come to God empty. Seek him humbly. The first invitation is in verse 1 to 5. What's the hope if you come to him empty? Come to God empty and you will be revitalized. Look what it says in the second half of chapter or verse 2. Listen to me diligently. Eat what is good. Delight yourself in rich food. Verse 3, incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. Revitalization. Come to him empty because a feast is waiting for your starved soul. See, Isaiah 55, verse 1 to 3 is an invitation to come to a feast at God's table. Jesus actually picks up in this language in the Gospels. And he's borrowing language from Isaiah 55 and Isaiah 25. See, the soul was created by God with an appetite. You're craving for things that the material world can't satisfy. And you might not even know it. But to most of us, it's pretty clear that most of us in our world are pretty soul-starved. Even though we have access to like anything we could want at almost a moment's notice, like the writer of Ecclesiastes, at the end of the day, it all feels vain, doesn't it? The soul has an appetite. We crave to be known, but we often feel starved by shame. We crave to be loved, but we're starved by insecurity. We crave to belong, but we're starved with loneliness. We crave to have peace, but we're starved by fear. We crave to have security, but we're starved with instability. So, if God is the creator of the soul, and he knows that we're a soul-starved people, what does God offer at his feast that satisfies the starved soul? Especially in in our time, when the pain is so real 
that, that's all that we can focus on is our hunger pains. What does God offer the starved soul? He offers us a feast in his word. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy, eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen to me diligently. Listen to me. It's his word. Delight yourself in rich fruit. Incline your ear. Hear. It's his word. The word of God, listened to diligently, heard regularly, is a feast of hope for a starving soul. Jesus believed this. Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, he said, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? By every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jeremiah 15, 16, Your words were found, and I ate them, and they became to me the joy and delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. God offers hope for the starved soul. And in our affliction... We can sometimes only focus on the hunger. God offers hope. Come empty to him. Acknowledge your pain and bring it before him and you will be revitalized. Your soul will live. Remember the people that who Isaiah is talking to here, right? They were guilty of a lot of pretty, pretty nasty stuff. Ravaging their neighbors for personal gain. Faking religious piety while cheating on God with pagan gods. But, because these were God's chosen people, even though they were wretchedly guilty, and even though they were blind to it, God still loved them. Even though they did not deserve a seat at his table to enjoy his feast, a table was, uh, was open God offers hope. These were the type of people who deserved to get canceled in our culture. These were the type of the people who are the snobby 1% who should be doing crimes that deserve decades in prison but get a slap on the wrist and a fine that they can pay easily. But God still loves these people. And listen to the feast of hope that God offered to them in his word just in the previous chapter in Isaiah 54. Look at Isaiah 54 verse 10. Look at it with me there. These wretched people, God still looks at them and they're guilty and they finally see it. But he says, the mountains may depart and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. These people deserve to be punished. They deserve to go to the gallows. But this is what God says to them in verse 17. No weapon for, fashioned against you shall succeed. You shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. Vindication? They didn't need vindication. They deserved condemnation. But because of the suffering servant, because of the ideal Israelite who suffered in their place, they could go free. The feast of your soul is the gospel of Jesus Christ. All your shame, all your guilt, everything that empties you, that makes the material world just not satisfied. 
Christ removes the black hole of all that our sin sucks up and fills it with his love and his grace and his compassion. God offers hope. Come empty and be revitalized. But maybe you don't even recognize that you're empty. Maybe you haven't been able to put your finger on on, on why every single promotion that you get for every next job still doesn't make you feel happy. You, you can't put your finger on why, even though you've reached the best body image that you're always looking for, you're still not comfortable in your own sin. Even though you have all of the luxury brands, even though your grades are higher enough that now, now will my parents be glad? Why? I've got it. I'm reaching it. Why am I still empty? Everything we feast on comes with a cost. You can rise to the top of your career, but can often come at the cost of your family life, your social life, your mental health. You can finally achieve the body you've always wanted, but it comes at the cost of insecurity because you're always comparing yourself to someone else. You can get your kids to be as obedient as you want them to be to make you feel good about yourself without realizing the insecurity that is actually building up in them without grace. Everything we feast on always comes with a cost. And if the created things in the world are put in a place where they are treated above the God who created this world, then we're feasting on what this passage would call not bread. Right? What are you feasting on that's not bread? Why do you spend your money? Why do you go to the cost to continually feed your soul for something that just doesn't satisfy? I do this. We all do this. Here's the good news. Some of you maybe aren't going to God, aren't coming empty to him and are trying to fill yourself up because you don't trust that what he has is really enough. You don't trust that his feast will actually satisfy. And there's a measure of control that you don't want to give up this thing that you're striving for. The good news is the soul-revitaling feast of God has been generously paid for in the gospel and offered to you freely. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without price. The cost to fill your soul has been paid for by Christ. There's, there's, there's no hidden fees. There's no extra tax Come empty and your soul will be revitalized. God offers hope. You don't need to spend your soul. You don't need to feed yourself with what doesn't satisfy. But notice, a feast isn't just something for yourself, is it? Unless you're like, have leaned really hard into quarantine and your feast is is like every night skip the dishes and Netflix binging yourself. That's not the type of feast we're looking at here, all right? And a real feast is a feast with a big table and a lot of seats. A real feast is a meal that we share. So when God says that we can, he offers hope, and when we come empty, we can be revitalized, this isn't just a me thing, this is an us thing. 
and see what comes when they all get at the table. When they all get at the table here, God decides that he's like, you know what, we got to fix this, this broken relationship that we have as the family of God, as the nation of God. And he wants to fix it by renewing the covenant that he made with a special chosen King David. Look at the text again. When they come to the table, it says, I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my sure, steadfast love for David. I made him a witness, leader, commander. What's happening here? The invitation to come and feast is also an invitation to renew their covenant with God. God had a special relationship with King David, the son of Jesse. And David's responsibility as the king was to be leader, commander, witness. As a witness, he was an example for them to follow. As a leader and a commander, he was the governor who executed righteous rules for them to respect. The king, example to follow, governor with rules to respect. And the point is, David was the example of the best king, but he dropped the ball. But then every king that came after that, they dropped the ball. And that king kind of represented the whole nation. So as the king went, so the nation went. And every king dropped the ball. But God's saying, I'm sending the true king. The guy who's not going to drop the ball. Who's going to lead this nation back and lead this people back to be the people that I created you to be. It was revitalizing because the people needed a community inside. Because at the time... The people had a community inside that was marked by religious hypocrisy, that was marked by injustice of the marginalized. That's not what God wants for his people. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, God tells them that this is not what he wants for those people. He says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's case. That's what he wanted for the nation. So in Isaiah chapter 9 then, he promised, hey, the king's coming and he's going to be the one that gets it done. You're going to follow him. You're going to respect his rules. Isaiah 9 verse 7. This is one of those like Christmas passages that we often read. Isaiah 9 verse 7. Of the increase of government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David, see the connection here to chapter 55 with David? On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That's what God wants for his community. And this new king wouldn't just revitalize their community outside, he would also revitalize their testimony, excuse me, wouldn't just revitalize their community inside, but their testimony outside. See, they were supposed to be, the nation of Israel, a light to the rest of the nations. They were supposed to be um, a community that was so attractive and so honorable that the rest of the nations would want to flock to it to worship their God. But they weren't a light to the nations. They were walking in darkness. They weren't a sweet flavor. They were sour. No one wanted to go to them. 
but God offered hope. Not only would he revitalize them individually, he would revitalize them collectively. Come to God empty. He will revitalize you. He will revitalize us. But if he's going to revitalize us so that our church has the type of community inside that God wants and is the type of testimony outside that's attractive, then we need to renew our allegiance to the true king. Jesus is the promised king of Isaiah chapter 9. Jesus is the son of David who would come and rule with righteousness and justice forever. We must renew our allegiance to King Jesus. That sounds like a simple Sunday school answer, right? Just give your allegiance to Jesus. I got that down. Jesus is my king. Nice bumper sticker too. Got a coffee mug with it as well. All right, okay. Uh, Easy to say, harder to do. Remember, he's an example to follow. He has rules to respect. If he has our allegiance, then we'll really treat others the way he treated us. And this might need to be something that you evaluate even here, even now, when we think about our relationship as brothers and sisters in Christ. Christ didn't look down on me, even though I do shameful things. He lifted me up. Christ didn't overlook my sins. Christ paid for my sins. And he empathizes me in my temptation to sin. Christ didn't hold on to my sins. He released me of my sins. And the person who knows they've received that from King Jesus is the person who treats others like that as well. They don't look down on others even though they do shameful things. Others might want to throw the rock, they drop the rock. We don't, Jesus didn't overlook my sin and pass it off. It's like, ah, it's not a big deal. And in the same way, we need to speak the truth in love. But we need to empathize with each other as Christ empathized with us. We can't hold on to the things that people do against us. Christ didn't do that to me. He released me of my sins. That's what revitalization will look like and feel like and taste like. That will satisfy a starved soul. God offers hope for the storm-tossed, soul-starved Christian, but we need to come to him empty. And we need to renew our allegiance to him. Come to him empty and you will be revitalized. Seek him humbly and you will be redeemed. That's the second invitation. We see it there in verse six. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he may be near. Seek him humbly and you will be redeemed. See, these people Isaiah was prophesying to, they were about to be taken as prisoners of war off from the promised land into a foreign nation. They were going to be going as captives. But even before they left as captives, they still remained as captives because they were captives to their own wicked and unrighteous ways and thoughts. But the hope of God 
that we find when we seek him humbly is that we will be redeemed. Seek him humbly and you will be redeemed. Verse 7, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. These terms seek, call, forsake, this is describing the biblical process of change that we call repentance, right? Notice the urgency of this. Look at verse 6. Get your eyes down to the end of the text with me. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Do you hear the, the, the urgency of this? Lingering is lethal. Ignorance is not bliss. In this urgency of the call to repentance, they should feel the weight of it. But still, in the weight of it, in the urgency of it, God offers hope. You will receive compassion. Come humbly. Admit what you've done wrong. You're not going to find a cold shoulder. You're not going to find someone looking down your nose you should have known better. Compassion is a tender, gentle love that God gives to those who are broken and lowly. Seek and call to God humbly, and you will be abundantly pardoned. Remember Romans chapter 5, verse 20? Where sin increases, what does grace do? Grace abounds all the more. Remember Psalm, chapter, uh, Psalm 103? For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love to those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed his transgressions from us. Abundantly pardon. How, pile up your sins. God's grace is higher. Dig down your shame. God's grace goes deeper. No cold shoulders. No fear. Even in our unrighteous ways and thoughts, God offers hope. But Isaiah seems to anticipate that they might choose to linger and they might choose ignorance. So what he does then is he contrasts their thoughts and ways to God's thoughts and ways. Their thoughts and ways are wicked and unrighteous. But verse 8 and 9, we see God's thoughts. You might know this verse. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my, your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Being high above us means that God's ways are holy. They're set apart, they're different, and they're better for our good. And when we're storm-tossed, and soul-starved, it's hard to see that. In the midst of our deepest afflictions, one of the questions we often ask is, where is God? It's hard for a storm-tossed, soul-starved person to, to, to see that what God is doing because we're just stuck in this episode now and we don't see the end of the story. I just started watching a, a new show that was online and streaming platform. A lot of shows that are put out online, they like dump the whole season, like right away. And then you s don't sleep until 4 a.m. that night because you watch the whole thing in one take. But the show I'm watching now, it's one episode a week. And I watched the last one last night and just like, I want to know what's next. 
when am I going to find out what's next? But I'm just stuck here. And when we're storm-tossed and in our deepest afflictions, the soul can get really twisted because you're just stuck here. And you don't see the whole story of what God's doing. But if we look back, not back in our story, but back to other people's stories, we'll see how God's faithful throughout the whole story. See, these, these people might be asking, how is it good that our God who loves us is sending us away into exile? You might be asking, how is it good that I've been unemployed for months? How is it good that God would allow our church to go through a crisis? Well, don't just look back in your story. Look back to other stories. God's ways were good to Abraham. He wandered his whole life in a desert. God's good ways were good to Joseph. Remember Joseph's story? They lied to their dad and said that they killed him, but they didn't kill them. Next best offer, they sold him into slavery. And he went from a pit to slavery to prison because his master's wife accused him of something he didn't do. He didn't see the end of the story. But we know where God take him out of the prison and into the palace for the good of his whole family, even his brothers who did wrong to him. God was good to Abraham. God was good to Joseph. God was good to David. David was anointed as the chosen king, but the wicked king was still sitting on the throne. And the chosen king, who God loved and was the man after his own heart, God allowed the wicked king to chase and kill him and try to kill him and threaten his life, and he spent months and months in a cave worried that he would die. Where's the good in that? But we know at the end of the story. And oh, God redeemed the man, and all he needed to do was sit and wait for God to work. Look to the cross. We have gold chains of cross around our neck, but the cross is an instrument to butcher humans. Imagine his disciples, their teacher, betrayed, arrested, tortured, murdered, watching it happen. How is this good? When you're stuck in the episode, the soul does some weird stuff. When you see the whole story, you can seek him him humbly. You can recognize his ways are higher than my ways. His thoughts are higher than my thoughts. And I've seen him do good in the past. Hey, he wants to do good to you now. He wants to do good to us now. God offers hope. Seek him humbly and you will be redeemed from the captivity of your thoughts. But I would caution you, Watch out for stubbornness. It's an urgent call. Seek the Lord while he may be near. And you know, the Lord often passes over stiff-necked, stubborn people. Take God's urgent call seriously. Because if you set into your stubbornness, it could break you. Proverbs 29 verse 1 says, He who is often reproved, yet stiffens his neck, will suddenly be broken beyond healing. Don't stay in your ways. Look up to God's. God offers hope. Seek him humbly. Seek his word humbly. And guess what? God's word 
God's ways will do what God promised they will do. So what does God's word do? What does God's word do to redeem the captive soul? Well, God's word is not only a feast for the starving, empty soul, it's also spring rain for the dry and weary soul. Verse 10, For as the rain and snow do not come down from heaven and Come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent him. It's really nice weather today, wasn't it? I was wearing shorts, went out for a run. Uh, I'm enjoying it, but like I'm really skeptical because I'm pretty sure there's going to be like frost real soon, right? It's November, don't get comfortable with this. Start putting your winter tires on, right? And soon, February is going to be coming, and there's going to be an inch and a half of ice on your windshield, and you're out in the pitch black when it's like 8 a.m., scraping it off. It's like, I don't want to be in this right now. But the pileup of snow and the pileup of snow in the dead of February is eventually going to melt. And the melt of four feet of snow it's going to do a lot of good to water the ground around it. And it's going to bring forth. And it's going to sprout. And it's going to do a harvest. But you're not looking forward to that when you're scraping the ice off your windshield. God's word will do what God promised it will do for your soul. Take him at his word Feed on it regularly. Let it shower down. It will do what he promised it will do. So what does God's word do for the captive soul? Verse 12 and verse 13 show us. Four things God's good word does for the captive soul when we feast on it and when we let it shower down on us. Number one, it gives us real freedom. Verse 12, for you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The, the vision is looking forward to the day that when the would-be exiles would return from exile. They would no longer be prisoners of war. They would be free men. Just as God delivered Israel out of Egypt, he would deliver the again, them again out of Babylon. And they wouldn't just go out despondent. It's been 70 years. You will be let go out in joy. Not a sober contentment. But this joy is a jubilant, uncontainable, just, just expression of thanksgiving to a redeeming God. Joy and peace. Not a mere tranquility of the mind. Peace, biblical peace, is wholeness, completeness within myself, with others around me, with God. Freedom. Not burdened down with anxiety. Not, not captive in my fears. Freedom with joy and peace. Freedom and God's word produces worship. Look at the second half of verse 12. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. We look forward to the day when God will fully redeem all of the earth. 
and there will be a day when all of the earth and all of creation just rejoices with the God who created it. And creation itself, Romans 8 says, is waiting for us to receive our full redemption and for the curse of sin to be gone. And we anticipate that day, and we look forward to that day, and we worship God now knowing that he will fully abolish all of the pain and all of the suffering even though we're storm-tossed today. Even though we're storm-tossed today, God offers hope and his word will, not might, not could, let it shower down. Eat it daily. It will open your heart so that you can worship him. Have a true sense of freedom and joy even when you're storm-tossed. Abundance. Freedom, worship, it produces abundance. Briars, thorns, those are like, like you might say in North America, like cactus, right? Tumbleweeds. Those grow in desert places where no one lives. But instead, what happens when God's word rains down is cypresses come up. Myrtles, though are, those are fruitful, lavish, where there's lots of water. That's what God wants to do in your life. And by golly, the afflictions we feel, they make us feel dry. Let this shower down in your life. And you will see that dry desert turn into an abundance oasis. It's not wrong to feel dry and weary. I've felt dry and weary. But in your dryness and weariness, you may need to wait, but God offers hope. Freedom, worship, abundance, and finally, a witness. Second half of verse 13, it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. See, when God's word has its effect on our soul, it does good to us, but it's not just for us. It's for the sake of the name of the God who created our soul. When others see what happened in your life, it's a sign that it can happen in their lives. This is why God made us. But when we're storm-tossed, when we're starved, sometimes all we see is the waves. Sometimes all we feel is the hunger pain. Yet God made you for his glory. So when you feel the pains and when you see the waves, God offers hope. So if that's where you find yourself, come to him empty and you will be revitalized. Seek him humbly and you will be redeemed. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the good that it does to us always. Forgive us, Lord God, for uh, misprioritizing your word, misprioritizing fellowship with other believers that's saturated in your word, neglecting sitting under the teaching of your word. Forgive us for not using our time well, and giving it to things that aren't bread. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your gospel. Lord God, would you revitalize our church? Would you redeem us from the captivity we find ourselves in? And would we see, would you draw us near to come humbly, come empty and seek humbly when we see the face of our Lord Jesus Christ? Thank you that he satisfies. Thank you that he redeems. 
draw us near, Lord, our rock, our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen.